Let's turn our attention now to some of those wonderful words of life that the Lord speaks to us. And we'll find them in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to start reading at verse 10. If you want to follow along in one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 572. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. This is the word of God. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet." and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word. We've gathered together on your day as your people, and we need to hear from you, Lord. We need you to speak your word to our hearts, write it on our hearts, help us to understand it, help us to believe, and to respond with true faith and love and obedience to what you speak to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have Mike back with us. You may not know that he went away this past week and took some seminary classes down in Orlando. 
If you watch the devotionals, you'll know that he did a devotional from sunny Orlando, not rubbing it in at how warm and sunny it was down there. Um, I'm not ready for it to be warm and sunny yet. I know, I know, I understand that. But I have a question. It's January 15th today, and my question for you is, do you miss Christmas yet? Because I do. Uh, I'm always a stickler for not wanting to start celebrating Christmas too early. So, you know, our culture has this thing that like the day after Halloween, like Christmas vomits all over the inside of everything. And I'm just like, it's not Christmas season yet. We have this thing called Thanksgiving that's coming, and we should do that. Um, but so I'm a stickler for not starting that too early. And my kids know if they try to put on Christmas music in the car and it's not yet the day after Thanksgiving, I'm like, turn that off. It is not time yet. And, uh, but what, one, of the, one of the reasons why I do that is because I like to miss Christmas when it's gone. I don't like it to be so tired of it that it's just like, oh, I got this Christmas stuff out of here. And so I miss it. Um, we, we do sort of observe 12 days of Christmas in our house. We don't really do anything formal with it, but uh, we never take our tree down until after January 6th. That's a big thing. So we were taking our tree down on January 7th this year, and it was just sad packing it all up and putting it away. And so here we are, January 15th. Christmas is most definitely over, and we come to Isaiah 7, and we're doing something very unusual with Isaiah 7.14. And that is, we're looking at it in the context of Isaiah 7, which we almost never do, and we're not looking at it during the Christmas season, which we almost always do. And so, when you put it in its context, it's interesting because you might read it and think, well, all my life I've heard Isaiah 7.14 as a Christmas verse about Jesus. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's, that's Jesus and, and the Virgin Mary and, and Christmas. But if you keep reading, it in the context doesn't seem like that's really what Isaiah is talking about. We're in the middle of this geopolitical situation with King Ahaz coming under threat from Israel and Syria, who joined forces against him, and uh, the Lord tells him to ask a sign of the assurance that, that this coalition is not going to be successful, and, and this is part of the sign that God gives, and, and God says that this child, he's going to eat curds and honey, and before he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That sounds like something that's going to happen in the immediate future, not 700 years later. And so have we misunderstood this verse all these years? Well, no, but maybe. And to understand the no, but maybe, we haven't really misunderstood it, but maybe we've missed something important by taking it out of its context. We're going to have to do a little bit of thinking to see the context here. So again, we're just to review from what we picked up on last week. King Ahaz, he's king of the southern kingdom of Judah, capital in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the southern part of God's people after the split that happened 
uh, after the death of Solomon. Solomon's son Rehoboam was a foolish king, and so ten of the tribes rebelled against him and formed their own northern nation called Israel. Might get confused. Why is Israel attacking Israel? It's because they've been divided into two kingdoms for uh, hundreds of years by this time. And King Ahaz is in this line of David. He's part of the house of David. That's why he's addressed in verse 13 as, O house of David. So he's in the promised line, the covenant line, but he is a wicked, idolatrous fool. There's no other way to describe the guy. He's one of the worst kings in the history of God's people. And yet God is being so gracious to him here. God is coming to him and saying, you're terrified because these two nations, each one of which is stronger than you. See, Israel to the north, they had ten tribes. Judah only had two. Syria was even more powerful than Israel. These two nations to the north, each one of them had sort of taken their turn at beating up on Judah. And Israel did it so bad, as we saw last week, they killed 120 thousand people in one day in battle, and they took 200,000 people captive. It was one of the most devastating military defeats in the history of the world, really, a single battle of just such devastating effect. And here, they've joined forces, and they're coming together back into this land that's already been so devastated, and Ahaz is just in a panic. And he doesn't know what to do, but what he's planning on doing is sending an envoy, sending a team of government officials with all of the gold and silver that was in the temple of the Lord, as well as gold from his own personal treasury. And they're going to go up to Assyria, which is a a farther north and even more powerful uh, nation, and they're going to invite them to come in and attack Syria and Israel and get them off their back. He's thinking, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but... God says very clearly in today's passage that the king of Assyria is going to bring worse things on Judah than they would have ever anticipated. And the root of it is because Ahaz will not trust the Lord. He just won't. He he pretends to, but he doesn't actually. God challenges Ahaz through his prophet. We read in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. It's a very powerful expression, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, because it's actually Isaiah who's physically saying these words, but it is the voice of the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Ask a sign of Yahweh your God, the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Here's a, a just a stunning invitation. God says to him, literally, this wicked, idolatrous, faithless king, God so loves his people and is so committed to his covenant promise that he's made to David that he says to this king, this son of David, he says, ask me literally for any miracle you can think of in heaven or earth. Let it be as high as the heavens. You want me to move the stars around the heavens? I'll do it. Or as deep as Sheol, anything you could possibly think of. God is, this is the only time in Scripture where we have a record of this. God invites someone to ask for any miracle they can possibly think of. The greatest possible sign. Ahaz would have known of the parting of the Red Sea. He would have known of the parting of Jordan. He would have known of the sun standing still uh, at the Battle of Ai. He would have known of all of these things. 
And he was invited to ask of anything. But he doesn't want to do it. He's stuck in this position where he doesn't want to do it, but he also doesn't want to come across as being irreverent toward Yahweh. I mean, after all, if Yahweh, your God, gives you something, he can't just say, I don't care about Yahweh, my God, because he's still the national God of Israel and, or of Judah, and his temple is right there, and he's the king, and so he takes this line, this hypocritical religious line, and he actually quotes scripture to justify disobedience to God. He says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not put the Lord to the test. As Deuteronomy 6.16, it's part of the law of God. God's people are forbidden from putting God to the test. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 when he's dealing with Satan in the desert wilderness. He's being tempted, and, and Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels charge over you, and they will bear you up on their hands, lest you strike your foot against stone. Jesus says, behold, it is written, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. So Ahaz quotes scripture. It is a bad idea to try to quote the Bible to justify disobeying God. It's actually exactly what Satan did when he quoted the Bible against Jesus, where Jesus responded with this verse. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. Okay? And he'll use it if it'll get him his way. And that's what's happening here. And so the response from God is not, oh, good for you. You know the law of God. You're a pious person. No. The response from God is basically, who do you think you are and where do you get off? That's my paraphrase of this. <laughs> Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He's already engaging in political manipulation. He's already engaging in, in earthly machinations to try to manipulate this situation. And now he's trying to manipulate God. It's a bad idea. By addressing Ahaz as O house of David, Isaiah is dramatically emphasizing how far the house of David has fallen since the days of David. David was a man after God's own heart. David was not perfect. He was a sinner. He was a, a horrible sinner at times. But he was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. And when the Lord called him to do something, he did it. And here Ahaz is just a snake. Or in other words, he's a politician. Because he wants an earthly political solution to his problem, and he doesn't want to trust the Lord. And so God gives Ahaz a sign anyway. Even though he doesn't ask for one. And the immediate application of the immediate partial fulfillment of this sign is a sign of judgment. A child is going to be born. And by the time that child is able to reliably distinguish between good and evil, 
The lands that have threatened them, Ephraim, that's Israel, and Syria, are going to be vanquished. They're going to be defeated. This is what God had already said he was going to do. In verse 7, he said, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. They're not going to get their way. But, immediately after that, he says, in that day, in that same day, when these two nations that you fear are vanquished, in that same day, this is what the rest of the chapter does from verse 18 and on, in that day, what's going to happen? The king of Assyria the one you're sending all that gold and silver to, the one you're looking to for your salvation, he's going to come against you. And you're going to find out what a bad idea it was to put your hope in him. I love the way God in Isaiah 7 refers to the nations of the earth. Later in Isaiah 40, which is probably my second favorite chapter in all of Isaiah. Are you allowed to have favorite chapters in books. Isaiah 53 is obviously like the crowning jewel of the whole Old Testament, but Isaiah 40 is pretty awesome. In Isaiah 40, God's going to say that all the nations of the earth are but a drop in the bucket or dust on the scales. And here in this chapter, yes, last week we saw how he referred to these two great powers that, that Judah was trembling over, Israel and Syria. God says they are smoldering stumps of firebrands. There's just it's nothing. They're just like little smoldering stumps that you could just stomp on and put out, you know? It's nothing. And here, he's referring to Assyria. When Assyria rises, it's going to be the largest empire that the world has ever seen to that point. Okay, It's going to stretch from present-day Iran to present-day Egypt throughout that whole Middle Eastern area. Iraq, Iran, Syria, all the way down into Egypt. But he, listen how he refers to them in verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the deep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. He's going to call for his bugs Flies and bees. That's all they are in the sight of God. And they're going to come. But while they may be small and insignificant in God's eyes, they will be the worst thing that has ever happened to Judah. They're going to come and they're going to devastate the land. This helps us to understand a little bit this. this confusing expression in verse 15 he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good like i don't know if you looked at that and thought well that sounds pretty good actually wouldn't mind going home and having some cheese curds and honey that sounds pretty tasty but that's not a good thing and the reason why we know it's not a good thing is you always use context to clarify and we get that same expression down in verse 22 so Starting in verse 21, in that day a man will keep a, alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. And why will they do that? Well, because in that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. And verse 25, all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you'll not come there for fear of briars and thorns. 
all of the cultivated farmland throughout the entire land of Judah is going to be desolate. People aren't going to go there. And so they're going to be left with just the goods that they can have. So they have stored up honey in jars from bees, and they have milk, and they can make curds with it, which is a way of keeping that around. That's it. So it's a, it might sound like, oh, great, that's a good diet, curds and honey, but... Um, you know, you might enjoy a snack of curds and honey when you get home from church today. Everybody have cheese curds, by the way? Never had cheese curds? You got to go to Wisconsin, get some cheese curds. That's good stuff. I can't eat them anymore, but you know. But if you had to eat nothing but cheese curds and honey, <laughs> three meals a day, <laughs> you would be so sick of it, you would, you would look for anything else. You'd start chewing on your shoe to get something different. But that's all they'd be able to eat because there's going to be no crops because this can be the worst thing that's going to happen. And this is the thing that we can learn from this partial fulfillment of this that is here with uh, King Ahaz. And that is that be careful of the things that you trust in for the things that you trust in when you're not trusting in the Lord will often become the very things that will hurt you the most. This morning, in our Bible reading devotional, we were in Mark chapter 4, and uh, I made a last-minute addition to my sermon notes this morning, listening to Mike's teaching. Uh, In Mark 4, you have the parable of the soils, and it's that third soil. If you know the parable of the soils, some falls on the path, and some falls on rocky soil, some falls among thorns, and then some falls on good soil. That third soil, Jesus says in Mark 4, 18 to 19, sown among thorns, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. King Ahaz was a professing believer. He said, Yahweh is my God. Oh, but so is Baal, and oh, so is Ashtoreth, and oh, so is... What is that? It's like... Jesus is my Savior, I am a Christian, but also let me have this thing that the world offers because that's something that I really need. The deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, the desire for other things. They come in and they choke the word. What does that look like? It looks like the man who neglects the Lord and his family and who instead lives for his job and his career thinking that work and career And money are the way that he provides for his family. I'm going to be a good provider. And what ends up happening? Spend so much time at work that the family he's trying to provide for is harmed by the thing that he gave himself to in order to provide for. Or the woman who laments the lack of romance in her marriage, and so she turns to romance novels or maybe watching The Bachelor or some other trash TV show. And what does that do? Well, that, those things actually draw her heart away from the Lord from the Lord and from her husband more and more, and they end up killing whatever romance was left in the marriage. Or the family that chooses sports over church because they want to spend time with their kids and invest in them And years later, they may be lamenting when their kids walk away from the Lord because they've never really known him because they never made the worship of God a priority for their family. Or it might look like the church 
that fears losing its influence in society and which reaches out for a political influence instead of a gospel influence as a way to remain relevant and protect their rights, and they watch as their political activism undermines their gospel witness to their neighbors and destroys their spiritual unity in Christ. So that's what we can get out of the partial fulfillment that we see in Ahaz's day. But the truth is that this sign is too great to have been fulfilled in this partial way. It does appear that if you, next week we're going to continue on in Isaiah chapter 8. There's a child who is born to the prophet Isaiah and to a prophetess, and his name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I'm telling you guys, you're looking for baby names. You go to Isaiah, because you got your choice, right? Uh, you've got your choice between Shear uh, Joshbub and Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Come on. But he has this child, and, and chapter 8 makes it, I think, pretty clear that the, there's a partial fulfillment of this word through this child that Isaiah has. But that's not the ultimate fulfillment, because this verse, if you really look at verse 14... And the setup for verse 14, it is far too great, far too wonderful, far too profound to be completely fulfilled in the birth of a boy to the prophet Isaiah. Remember the setup for this. What did God challenge Ahaz with? Ask me for a sign, any sign, as great a sign as you can think of, as high as the heavens, as deep as Sheol. Go ahead, shoot for the moon. Right? So this is something big. Just the prophet Isaiah having a boy by a woman in an ordinary way doesn't really fit that, right? And then the language of it itself, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, not Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So, the virgin... There's been a lot of ink spilled over whether or not this word that Isaiah uses in Hebrew actually means virgin or whether it just means young maiden. What it means is a young maiden of marriageable age who's not yet married. In other words, a virgin. Um, and on the insert, there's a devotional from Ligonier that will give you a little bit more detail on that, but it's, it's clearly referring to a virgin and to a virgin birth. And so it is something profoundly miraculous. And so it is right that while this may have had a partial fulfillment in the days of Isaiah and Ahaz, its real fulfillment, its true fulfillment, was found in Jesus. And that's true of all Old Testament scripture. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school, but throughout the Old Testament, we're given promises, pictures, covenants, people, historical events, ceremonies of worship, all of which have a meaning and a relevance within their original context. But the true meaning, the real meaning of all of Scripture is always going to be tied to Jesus. And so it's like, here's this child who's born, but really the ultimate meaning is Jesus. And what we'll see is the, actually the way that that meaning is fulfilled in Jesus, if we remember the original context, is actually very very profound, and we'll get there in just a minute. 
ultimately, the reason why we know that this is fulfilled in Jesus is because God himself tells us that in the Gospel of Matthew. In the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The significance of this sign, I would put to you, is not even primarily found in the fact of the virgin birth, although that is a fact, and it is prophesied here. But that's not what makes this such a great sign that it could be considered the greatest of all signs. It's not in the mere fact of the virgin birth, because think about it. The Lord could create a mere human being in the womb of a virgin and that human being be born and just be a human being. In fact, that's exactly what Islam believes about Jesus. Jesus was a great prophet who was born of a virgin, but he was a man. He wasn't the son of God. So you can have a virgin birth and not have the deity of Jesus, but the profundity is that this one is Emmanuel. That that's who he is, which is God with us. God with us. His name, Emmanuel. Jesus, the Savior, is Emmanuel, God with us. No ordinary human baby created in the womb of a virgin, but God himself who took on our human nature to save us from our sin. So what we have here is a partial fulfillment in the days of Isaiah and Ahaz, but an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, particularly in Emmanuel. Emmanuel means not just that God is on our side, but Emmanuel means that God himself has stepped into human history and become one of us and is with us in Jesus. Now, what does that promise of Emmanuel mean for us especially if we understand this original context, because the original context still has meaning. Its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus isn't separated from this original context. And I would put this to you. King Ahaz was given this sign at a time when he was living in dread of two great enemies who were greater than he was, each one of which was too powerful for him to defeat on his own, and yet they had combined forces together and all hope was lost from a human perspective. And the sign was given first to say those enemies are going to be defeated. It will absolutely happen. They will be defeated because God is on your side. But, but because you didn't believe, because you didn't trust me, you're going to suffer a judgment that's actually worse than the judgment you feared. So here's the connection from that to us. You and I. And every person who's ever lived in the face of the world faces two great enemies who are, each of them, greater than we are. And we cannot defeat them. And here's the thing. 
If Syria and Israel came into the land and laid siege and started devastating, there could be ways to escape that. You could flee to the countryside and hang out in a cave and wait till the storm to pass. You could perhaps be spared and be granted mercy. But you and I are facing two great enemies that every human being in the history of the world has faced and no one has ever escaped. No one's ever made it out alive against these two enemies. Each one of them, on their own, is undefeatable for us, but they combine forces. And those enemies are sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Emmanuel, through our Lord Jesus Christ, says our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true message of the sign of Emmanuel. That's why the birth name for Emmanuel is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God becomes one of us to identify with us, to overcome sin and death for us freeing us from our greatest enemies and from our greatest eternal danger. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 puts it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. It's like this. Picture a fire-breathing, man-eating, impenetrably armored dragon. Smaug. But if Smaug liked to swallow people whole, This dragon comes and just starts eating people. And no one can stand against this dragon. All sword blows, all arrows, all anything you send against this dragon just bounces off his scales. He is impenetrable, undefeatable, and he's just eating people. And then the hero realizes what the key is going to have to be. And so he puts on his armor and he marches straight toward the dragon and he gets himself swallowed whole by the dragon so that from the inside he can destroy the dragon and lead all of those out. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Peter said in Acts 2, it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him because he was pure and righteous and had never sinned against God, so he did not deserve to die. He's the only one in the history of the world who truly did not deserve to die, and he's the son of God who has the power of life in and of himself. And so he was dead, but then he destroyed the one who had the power of death, destroyed death from the inside. But here's the thing. 
just as Ahaz needed to trust the Lord to be delivered from his enemies and not try to take things in his own hands. And his refusal to trust made him subject to a greater judgment. So we need to trust Emmanuel. We need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sin and death and not try to take things into our own hands. Whenever we think that we can save ourselves from sin and death, we are acting like Ahaz sending an envoy to the king of Assyria to rescue him from Israel and Syria instead of trusting in God's promise of deliverance. Only Emmanuel can save us from sin and death. Not even our good works, our intelligence, our religiosity. Ahaz made a hypocritical mask out of his religiosity because he did not want to submit to God's sign. Do we do the same? Here's what that might look like. In several years ago when I was teaching a literature class on European literature, we read one of the medieval everyman plays. In the Middle Ages, there were plays that were put on for the people. They were called everyman. And they were basically meant to teach people about the truths of Christianity in ways that they could understand, which was needed because if they went to church, everything was in Latin and nobody understood what was going on. So they had these everyman plays to try to bring. And in the, in the everyman play that I taught years ago, there's this person who's dying, and he's trying to figure out what, what can possibly help him or save him as he's facing eternal judgment. And everything gets stripped away from him as being useless. He's trying his money. He's trying, you know, political connections. He's trying all that. And everything is gone. And in the end, the only things he was left with that he could take into eternity and that would speak for him before the throne of God, hear me on this, plot twist coming. The only things he could take were his faith and his good works. And those were the only two things that were going to stand before God and deliver him from eternal condemnation. Anybody see a problem? That's exactly the environment that Martin Luther stepped into and said, it's faith alone. Because it is Christ alone whose works save us. It is Christ alone whose works save us. So it is faith alone in Christ alone that justifies us before a holy God. My good works are not even good. And so we need Jesus, not, well, I'm an educated person, I'm respectable, I live a good life, I obey the law, I go to church, I give a full tithe, I am raising my children right, we are the good people. Any of this sort of self-righteous stuff that we put on, we need to realize none of that saves us. None of that saves us, which is good news because I think at the end of the day, we all know that it's not good enough. We all know. It's like, okay, I can't really be good. I mean, Mike said it very well early. It's like, 
I got a lot of people thinking I'm basically a good person, but at the end of the day, if, my, if a week of my thought life was put up here on a screen for everyone to see, I would not be your pastor anymore. You would probably not want to speak to me again. Because that's the reality of who we are in and of ourselves. But praise God, he has given us the sign of Emmanuel. God with us, who saves us from ourselves. From our sin and the consequences that our sin deserves, death. How does he do that? Well, we need two things to save us from our two enemies. We need righteousness to save us from sin. And we need resurrection power to save us from death. And Jesus himself has both and only he does he has a perfect righteousness that he earned in a lifetime of sinless obedience and he gives it to us as a gift he says here you need righteousness you don't have any take mine and then we say well what do i do with all this sin that i have he says i'll take that on the cross okay so the sin problem is solved but we all die He says, I've solved that too. Because I died and I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Come with me and I'll be the captain of your salvation to lead you through death into eternal life. Our enemies have been defeated. Satan's worst plans against us, God has said they will not come to pass and all he asks for us is that we believe that we trust not in ourselves, but in Emmanuel. Trust in Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, strengthen our faith in the only one who can save us. Strip us of anything else we might be trusting in that we might give our hearts to. Help us to see it for the filthy rags that it is and strengthen our confident hope in Emmanuel, our righteousness and our eternal life. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.